our current navigational uh, tools from the GPS in our car to Google Maps on our phones. Um, this is the, in, in the days before those things occurred, um, I would always ask my navigator, often my wife, to tell me what turn was coming up next. I said, just please tell me what turn was coming up next. So I knew it was coming. And this grew, this grew out of many years of, oops, that was where we were supposed to be turning. And um, invariably then we would go past the exit, go past the ramp, and occasionally I would pull over illegally back up on the highway to try to get off the ramp, and sometimes I was too far past it before I realized, and then you're down the road to the next exit, and then you've got to get off that exit, change directions, and come back. And in those moments, uh, my mood as we would change directions was not as kind, as gracious as I'm feeling this morning. And uh, fortunately, only my spouse and my kids have occasionally seen how evil I can become in a moment like that. Um, but let me ask you this question. How good are you when life requires you to change directions? When you don't really get any warning and then suddenly out of the blue, you have to turn around and go the other way. And some of you are spontaneous individuals and you love going through life without a plan and without structure and just kind of figuring out on the, in the way. And for others of you, a change in direction, even a change in the plan for the day can practically wreck you for the rest of the day. But in my experience, the, the change of directions that are most difficult are the ones that blindside us, the ones that we don't see coming when they hit us, the relational blindsides that hit us that we just never saw coming, and the explanations we have to offer to people as a result of that, the financial pinch that you didn't see coming. You planned, you saved, you budgeted, and then all of a sudden, without any warning, it just hits you. And it wasn't your poor management, but suddenly you're a few thousand dollars in the hole and you're not sure where that money's going to come from. You have college mapped out. You had a plan. But a family crisis requires a U-turn and for you to put your plans on hold. And suddenly without warning, or suddenly without warning, all those things that you believed for many, many years and you had kind of locked in your mind and there was nothing that was going to shake that because of a crisis you've experienced, these questions can't be answered. These questions can't be resolved in your heart, and your mind, and you're not sure where to turn. What do you do when life comes at you without warning, in spite of your best planning, and requires you to change direction? This morning we're going to look at the story in the life of, of David, an unlikely hero that we've been tracking with um, in the fall, and then have re-engaged this, this spring. And If you're new here to CCC, um, David was a hero who, didn't, like many heroes, didn't plan to be a hero. But suddenly he was confronted with a nine-and-a-half-foot giant. All the heroes, they have to face somebody really big, don't they? You know, Nine-and-a-half-foot giant, and he had to take him down. And then he became a hero, but in spite of being a hero, which everybody thinks they want to be, he finds that he's also now the villain, being chased by the king and hunted down and hiding and running for his life. And he finds refuge with his people's enemy, the Philistines, playing the role of a double agent. And so this morning, I think regardless of where you are at on your faith journey, you know, if someone convinced you to come this morning, even in spite of the rain, or, or maybe you've been coming to church for a little bit and you're just starting to take some steps towards following Jesus, or maybe a walk of faith is something that's been a part of your life for a long time, we all face times when life changes directions on us suddenly and we have to figure out what to do. If you have a Bible along with you this morning, if you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 30, 1 Samuel 30, you can also follow along in your 
on your phone or on your wireless uh, device. Um, our guys have some Bibles, and they'll pass them out to you as well. 1 Samuel 30. And before we get into 1 Samuel 30, we left David at this place of being a double agent where he's trying to figure out how long the scheme can last. And we didn't get any resolution. If you're here with us last week, we took a little detour with Saul and his little adventure trying to find out God's plan, and he got news he really didn't want to hear. And so what David did is David went and sought refuge with his enemies, the Philistines, in the town of Gath, which was Goliath's hometown. And for Achish, the king of Gath, this was an incredible turn of events because he just got the arch enemy's best player, best salesman, best leader on his team, just showing up and say, hey, can I join your company? And Achish could not have been happier. Not only did the Israelites not have their best leader with them, but he had him. He was blinded to the fact that David, whom he thought was defeating his own countrymen in battles down in the south, was actually defeating the enemies of Israel who partner with the Philistines, among others, the Amalekites. And so David was playing this role as a double agent. And, um, oh, we weren't to the, to the map yet. You can take the map down. We haven't got there yet, so they got ahead of me. How long will David be able to continue as this double agent? And before we get to chapter 30, I want to tell you what happened in chapter 29. Because in chapter 29, the events of 29 actually happened before chapter 28. But the narrator put them there to picture a contrast for us between what happened with David and what happened with Saul. So what happened in chapter 29, now we can put the map up there, so let's go ahead and put the map up there. What happened in chapter 29 is the Philistines were um, in the city of Aphek, and the Israelites were up in Jezreel, and they were going to battle in the middle. And so I need a couple helpers. Can you guys come up and help me here? Can you guys come on up and help? Come on up and help me here. So um, let's see. You're going to be you're going to be David. So you go back over there. You're going to be the Israelites. You stand no, you stand right there, face this way. And you're going to be the Philistines. You kind of stand right over here, okay? All right. So you stand here. Now he's on her team, okay? But these two are fighting, and that's actually what happened. See, they're about ready to fight. And so what what um, Achish did is he said, David, I'm going to put you at the rear guard to protect the back flank in case anybody tries to get away. You can get to them because the Israelites were also down in the south. And remember what, what um, Achish was trying to do. He's trying to cut them in half and divide them and keep the one half from the other half. And so he said, I'm going to put David at the back side. But, David's, uh, but Achish's military guy says, you know, that's not going to work out too well. It's not going to work out too well because you know what's going to happen. Dakota's going to sneak up, and when they're not looking, he's going to take her out. You know, I'm sure he would do that if he really could. You know, he's going to take her out, and he's going to benefit his own countrymen. And Achish's military leaders figured this out. Thanks, guys. You can go have a seat. Give them a hand. They're great actors this morning. So, so they came to Achish and said, "What are you doing?" Are you out of your mind? Are you putting their best military fighter in our backs? He's going to take us out. And he's going to be look good in his eyes. And Achish said to his guys, he said, I don't like what you're saying, but I can't disagree with what you're saying. And so Achish comes to David and he says to David, he said, David, he said, you've not done anything for me not to trust you. You've been very reliable. And he says, 
uh, you're someone that I can trust and you're someone that I can follow. I would be pleased to have you serve with me, but my commanders don't approve of you. And so you're fired. No, he didn't say you're fired. He said, go in peace. You know, that's what he said. Um, you guys didn't get that, did you? No, sorry. That was lame. Um, but, um, so David, he sent him home. He said, go home, go home. You're done. And so David was, he wasn't sure what to do. He was there ready to fight. He had been fighting down in the South and now he's going to fight and he was caught in the middle. What was he going to do? Kill his own countrymen, kill the Philistines and expose himself. What was going to happen? And what ended up happening is David was sent home. And that's where the story picks up in chapter 30 that we're going to look at this morning. And so David is sent back home. And so if you look in chapter 30, verse 1, David and his men reached Ziklag, Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They'd attacked Ziklag and burned it and had taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them but carried them off as they went out of their way. David had been up, as you're going to see on this next map, David had been up there in Aphek. That's where he had been up there preparing for the battle with the Israelites. And so he had to come all the way back down to Ziklag, approximately a 60-mile journey. Remember, they traveled on foot in those days. And so likely three days of hard movement with his troops. And as they were coming down, what David did not know is down in the south, some of the Amalekites, they had gone on raids and they had gone on raids in part of the Negev down to the south here. And as they came into the near the city of Ziklag, they didn't see any troop movement. And it was kind of puzzling them. Where are the troops? Where are the warriors? And as they spied on them a little bit longer, they realized there are no men around. Just the women and children. And they could not believe their good fortune. Because in all of the other raids, they had to either sneak in at night, they had to go to battle, and there was always great risk, but they could go in and fight the women. And so what they did is they took the women and the children, and they burned the city. And so imagine if you were David, and you were his men, and you had been traveling for three days, and you came back home, and you came over the horizon, and you saw in the distance smoke. And you're wondering, why is there smoke in the horizon as they're making the way south to Ziklag? And they're like, that smoke appears to be coming from someplace close to the, the town that we live in. And as they came over the horizon and they saw this next picture that's going to come on the screen, that's what they would have seen. Their village Burning. And in a moment, they had this sense. I want all the women, I want to ask all the women in the room and any, adult, any children, uh, guys or girls under the age of 20, just duck your heads in your seat. Just duck your heads down. Just duck your heads down. Duck your heads down. Now, guys, look around. Look around. Now, even if your family is not in the room, okay, everybody can pick your heads up. Even if your family is not in the room, you kind of get that... That sense of what hit these guys. I mean, they just came over that crest and they had literally faced the reality that they had just lost everything. Everything they loved, everything they treasured, everyone they loved, everyone 
that they treasured was gone. As they start going around in the fire, they realize there's no livestock there. Where's all the livestock? As they start putting the fires out, there's no bodies. And they realize their family was not dead, but had been kidnapped. Were they dead? Were they alive? But gone was every wife, says in verse 3, every son and every daughter. And look in verse 4. David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. I don't know if you've ever wept that badly in your life. Or you just cried till there's no more tears to come. You've expended so much energy you can't physically even move. And that was the level of grief these men felt at that moment in time. Devastation, heartbreak, agonizing, gut-wrenching loss. And in those moments when we face that kind of crisis, our minds quickly run to whose fault is this? Who do I blame for this? It didn't just start in our country in the era of litigation that we live in. This is from a long, long time ago. And so David and his men look in the next verse. Verse 6, David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in their spirit because of his sons and daughters. They turned against their leader. They said, this is not what we signed up for. You said you were going to protect us and provide for us, give us safe refuge. David is the one we were willing to follow and trust, not put at risk everything that we had. Grief and anger and now bitterness as these men turned on David. And so what does David do at this moment? What does he do at this crossroads? What does he do at this point in time that he never anticipated, never planned, that he not only was going to lose the people that he loved the most, but the support of the men who were following him and been willing to give their lives for him, now were ready to take his life. And the text says, David strengthened himself, or he found strength in the Lord his God. He found strength in the Lord his God. How did David do that? How did he do that? Well, if you were with us here a couple weeks ago, we talked about different ways that we connect to God. We know from the other writings of David that being outdoors, that being in creation, that being in those settings is a way that David connect with God. Maybe for you, music helps you connect with God. As we sang this morning and you just felt deeply, deeply connected to God as you were celebrating His greatness and anticipating His coming. Maybe for some of you, it's just quiet and solitude. Nobody else around. Maybe for some of you, you just need to read the Scriptures and remind yourself of what is true about God. And I'm not exactly sure how David, what, where David went to do that, to find this strength as his life was at risk. 
But I started to wonder, what did David actually do? What did he actually do to find his strength in the Lord his God? He didn't go anywhere else. There was nowhere else for him to turn. Nowhere else. How did he find his strength? Well, I hope this summer that you're here with us on Sundays because this summer we're going to look at the Psalms that David wrote when he faced these moments of crisis in his life. And we're going to look at the heart and the struggle of David. Because in these texts, we just get the facts. This has happened, and this happened, and this happened. But we don't know what went on on the inside. And the Psalms give us a glimpse of what went on on the inside. But as I thought about what David did, as I thought, there's some things that had to happen in David's life because of what he writes in the Psalms. I thought, as I think about the Psalms, what are the things that David often does? And I wrote some of those down, and and one of the things David does is, David is honest about his emotions. David says, God, this is what I'm feeling right now. He asked God some really hard questions that he didn't have answers to. He was honest about the situation. God, this is what's happening right now. He remembered what he knew to be true about God. He said, this is true about him. And lastly, he somehow filled up his tank so he could go back into battle. And I want to read you a couple verses from one of the Psalms that we're going to look at this summer. And as I read these verses to you, listen and see if some of these things don't show up. This is from Psalm 59. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Be my fortress against those who are attacking me. He's under attack. He's asking God to be his fortress. Deliver me from the evildoers and save me from those who are after my blood. See how they lie in wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me for no offense or sin of mine, Lord. He's saying, God, this is what the situation is right now. I haven't done anything wrong, but they're ready to attack me. You, Lord God Almighty, you are the God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish the nations. They return at evening snarling like dogs and prowl about the city. See what they spew from their mouths. The words from their lips are as sharp as... Swords, and they think, who can hear us? But you laugh at them, Lord. You scoff at them. You are my strength. I watch for you. God, you are my fortress. My God, on whom I can rely. As I thought about this, I thought, David is someone who is honest about what was going on inside of him. He was honest about the situation. He's not willing to ask God hard questions. God, where are you? God, why am I the recipient of this? I have done nothing to deserve this. But I don't want to lose sight of the fact that you're the only one that can rescue me. You're the only one that can protect me. No one else can do that. And then he found himself ready to go back into battle. And so what does David do next? After he strengthens himself in the Lord. The next thing that he does is in verse 7. He said to Abathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, this is the one priest that got saved when Doeg, the Edomite, wiped them all out earlier in the story. Bring me the ephod. Abathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Remember, the ephod was the gown, the, the outer garment that the priest wore, and in there were those two rocks that we talked about last week, the, the umen and the thumen, and those rocks would be used by the Israelites to determine. What does God want us to do? What will his answers be? And so David, in the medium that they had available to them that day, went to God and asked him. And the answer was this from the priest. Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. 
And I thought, wait a minute. David got answers to his question, but there was no intel. There was no spies that went out. David just asked God what he should do. And if you remember, in contrast to the story last week, Saul could not find anybody because God had distanced himself from him. And no one was there for him to speak to. And so what David did is he took all 600 of his men and they went south to try to find these individuals. And as they, as they traveled south to find these individuals, 200 of their 600 guys were just gassed. They're like, David, I don't have anything left. We just traveled three days straight. We just faced this agonizing devastation that we lost our family and overwhelmed with grief. And now you want us to go to, go to try to find these guys. We don't have anything left. And David said, okay, you just stay put. You stay put. And then as they continued, it says in verse 11 that they found an Egyptian and brought him to David. So they just came across this guy wandering out in the desert. I mean, when they're down south there, it's just desert. It's just rocks and wilderness. There's nothing there. So they came across this Egyptian. It's kind of an odd person to find down there. It says they gave him water to drink and food to eat, part of a cake of pressed figs and some cakes of raisins. And he ate and he was revived, for he had revived, for he hadn't eaten anything for three days or three nights. And so he said, you know, let's give these guys some food. And since these guys help me out, I'm going to give them some food. He said he gave them some cakes. So I got some Swiss rolls here, so that'll make for your cakes. He gave them some fruit, some raisins, and some fruit snacks, and some water. I'm not going to throw this, so I don't want to hit you here. Come get your water. So, so he gave them something to eat, and he said, eat some food. Oh, wait a minute. Oops, don't drink that. That's mine. <laughs> Sorry, brain lapse there. I'm not sick, but. So he said, eat some food. And so as he ate some food, the guy kind of came back to life. And David says, what's your story? Where did you, you come from? And look at his story in verse 13. He said, I am an Egyptian, the slave and Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. Where was David three days earlier? He was up preparing for battle. We raided the Negev of the Carthites, some territory belonging to Judah and the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. This guy's with the raiding party. So God knew that this was all going to happen. And he let David go away and let this awful tragedy come about. And yet arranged for this guy to be left there and dumped by his owner. He was likely a slave. He likely unhealthy. And so they didn't want the extra baggage, so they just left him by the side of the road. Three days before, the same timing in which David was up with the Philistines preparing to do battle. David said, can you lead us to this raiding party? And answered, swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master, and I will take him down to you. Remember what David said? He said, God, should we go after them and will we find them? He didn't know if they were going to be lying in wait for them. He didn't send out spies to find out where they were. He didn't know if he was going to walk into an ambush. But he said, this is what God wants me to do, and I'm going to trust that God knows what he's doing, and I'm going to take a step forward and do that. And along the way, he meets an Egyptian that he comes to discover in finding out his story that God had already prepared in advance for him to be there to give them direction to go exactly where they needed to go. 
So he led David down. And look in verse 16. And you can just picture the men, the 400 men, kind of coming over the crest. And as they come over the crest of the hill and they look down into the valley, they can see the Amalekites with all the spoil, with all the plunder. And it says that they were eating and drinking and reveling because of the great amount of plunder that they had taken from all of their raids and from the land of Ziklag. And so these men who had just been faced with devastating grief and now had found the people who had taken their loved ones, I can't even imagine the adrenaline in these men. Well, you can imagine, because it goes on to say in the text that they fought for 24 hours straight to defeat this army. There was likely a thousand or more individuals in battle. 24 hours straight, they fought to defeat this enemy who had robbed them of the people that they loved the most. And in God's miraculous protection, they were able to recover all of the women, all of the sons, all of the daughters. And it goes on to say, um, down in verse... Verse 19, nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and the herds, and his men drove them ahead of the livestock, saying, this is David's plunder. Amazing story of someone who, when he was at a crossroads and didn't know where to turn, turned the only place he had left to turn, which was to God, and he found strength, and he found hope, and he found direction and he was willing to follow him. But the story has a, tr- has a strange twist in the end. Because as they come back with all, of their, with all of their plunder, they come across the 200 guys who were there who hadn't gone to battle. And the question came, what do we do with all the plunder? And some of the individuals said, well, we should just give them back their wives and their kids. They don't get anything extra because they didn't go to battle. How many of you think that's a reasonable, fair plan? Let me see your hands. How many of you? Okay, a few of you. All right. It's kind of the Western way, right? You know. Hey, you earn it, right? You go to battle. You get combat pay. You get the extra. But look at what David says in verse 23. He says, no, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us and delivered into our hands the raiding party that came against us. See, David took a very different strategy than Saul. Saul listened to the voice of the people. David listened to the voice of God. Saul did what was expedient. David did what was honorable. Saul did what met his needs and what he felt was fair. And David said, I'm going to look to God for his guidance and direction and all of these things. And David said, you know what? This isn't ours. God gave it to us. God gave it to us, and we're going to share this equally with everyone. And that became the rule of the land from that day moving forward. David was establishing his role that will be, become firmly entrenched in the next book as the king. Establishing a way in which you recognize where all these blessings come from. And when you recognize what God has done in your life, you live a generous way of life. You live a generous way of life. 
You see, when you ask God for direction and he points away and says, go here, go there, go here, go there, and God blesses your life in some way, God says, now you have the opportunity to be generous with other people. Not to say, it's mine, I earned it, I worked hard for it, sure God told me where to go, but it's in my bucket or in my bank account. And God says, no, no. Be generous with what you have. Be generous with what you have. I don't think what David is advocating is a socialist form of government, but I think what David is saying is be generous with what you have. And as you think about this story that David, that David experienced, the question for you to look at is these two pictures of Saul, who needed advice, ended up at a witch his doorstep and was told the tragedy of his life coming to an awful end. Or the story of David who was at a crossroads that he never expected, that he never planned for, that just showed up at his doorstep and he went to the priest and he said, God, tell me where to go. And he was willing to follow his direction. You see, the truth is, is over time, the more you learn to make decisions on your own and God's not a part of the equation when you face those crossroads and in the moment you have to decide, you will defer to what you have been doing all along. But if in little decisions along the way of life right now, you pause and you say, God, what should I do? Where should I go? How should I decide this? When you face those critical crossroads, you're going to look to him. Because the reality is, as life comes at you sometimes, when, no matter how well you planned, you can't plan for this. You can't plan for this. I want to talk to the students who are here this morning because you are making decisions. You are starting to move into the season of your life where you are going to be making decisions on your own. Mom and dad are slowly letting their hands off of the decision making, not as quickly as you want them to. Well, that's just life. Just live with it, you know. But you are starting to make decisions more and more on your own. And as you make decisions, you're going to have to decide, how am I going to make decisions? Am I going to make decisions just because of what I want? Am I going to date this guy or girl just because I like them and they're, you know, they're sweet or hot looking and I just want to be with them? Or is this someone that's going to help me in my faith, that's going to stir up my love for God? You know, am I going to pursue a, a college just because I can get a scholarship or that's where I get the most money? Or is, is it because this is the direction that I prayed about and I sought God's direction and God is leading me towards, even though it might not be the most financially advantageous? When you start thinking about a career, you can look at the one that makes the most money, or you can say, God, who have you made me to be? What am I really good at? What do I love? And what do you want me to do with my life to make a difference in this world? You see, you're making decisions right now that are going to impact the rest of your life. And the way you navigate through them right now is going to guide you when you get blindsided by a situation like David did, and you have to figure out what to do in that moment. For the adults who are here this morning, you've been making decisions for a long time. And some of you are good decision makers. You're logical, you're rational, you know how to make good decisions. You look at the pros and cons and... As we talked about a couple weeks ago, I want to challenge you to ask yourself, when and where do I invite God into this process? Do I pray about it early on, early on and like figure it out and hope He blesses what I'm doing? Or is He involved in this process all along the way? You know, when I think about David, he trusted 
the direction that God was giving to him. He had no guarantee he was going to find those people. He had no guarantee that that Egyptian, even though he was benefiting them, was going to lead them in the right path. He trusted that God was bringing things into his life to lead him in the way that he should go. You know, some of you are at a crossroads right now. Life has changed direction on you without much warning. Maybe you're facing a health crossroads, a relational crossroads, a financial crossroads, a spiritual crossroads. And the question is, where will you turn when you face this crossroads in your life? Where will you turn? Saul turned one way, and David turned another. Which one are you going to choose today? As we close this morning, I want to invite you to bow your heads. And um, I know some of you have decisions this morning that you are at a crossroads with. Some of you have been sitting with this and wrestling with this and agonizing with this for a week, two weeks, three weeks. For some of you got confronted by it maybe even in the last few days. And it might not be as devastatingly agonizing as David's, but you still are faced with this difficult situation. Of What do I do? So I want to invite you just to take a moment. Tell God what you're feeling. Tell God about the situation. Ask Him hard questions. And remember who He is. others, there's nothing critical right now. But I want to challenge you to say, God, am I willing to bring you into the decision-making process of my life? If he has been, will you continue that? If you've marginalized him, will you bring him center stage? likely means you're going to have to trust God sometimes when you can't see the answer right in front of you. God, the story of David's incredible challenge that was in front of him It's quite mind-boggling to be faced with this tragic sense of loss. To be faced with 
the men that he rescued and gave purpose and meaning to turn against him and want to take his life and have nowhere to turn but to find a strength in you. And then to be willing to take a step of faith and trust you guiding him. Lord, I pray for us this morning as you know each of our stories, you know each one of our journeys. You know the decisions that are in front of us. Help us to be willing to turn and lean in towards you when we're faced with them. In your name we pray. Amen. You know, when you think about turning to God for direction and trusting Him, as a band comes on to lead us through this last song, it's, it's really about being willing to set aside to lay down my desires, my wants, my wishes, my need for control, my plans, and to offer all of them back to God. And trust that he has something in waiting three days away that he's already planned that you just can't see. That's the way God does things.